The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for April 9th, 2022. Earlier in the week, Saudi Arabian forces and Iran-backed Houthi fighters agreed to a two-month truce to halt fighting in Yemen. The ceasefire agreement would be the first halt in fighting between the two groups in Yemen since 2016. The truce between the two forces is scheduled to begin today. Houthi rebels claim that they will stop missile and drone attacks on Saudi oil facilities. In turn, Saudi forces agreed to halt its renewed airstrike and military campaign across Yemen. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from August 2020. In the episode, David Priest sat down with Elizabeth Kendall and Mick Mulroy to talk about the roots of the Yemeni war and its humanitarian toll, its evolution through conflict and COVID-19, and what at the time were potential prospects for improved conditions. I'm David Priest. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 26th, 2020. Yemen is home to the most tragic circumstances imaginable right now. Years upon years of war, environmental disasters, and severe humanitarian plight exacerbated by cholera, diphtheria, and now COVID-19. I sat down in the virtual jungle studio with two experts on Yemen from very different backgrounds. First, Elizabeth Kendall who is a senior research fellow in Arabic and Islamic studies at Pembroke College, Oxford University, who has spent extensive time on the ground in Yemen, even during recent years when it has been difficult for researchers to get there. We also brought in Mick Mulroy, former CIA officer, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East, and now a special advisor to UN Special Envoy to Yemen, Martin Griffiths. We talked about the roots of the Yemeni war and its humanitarian toll, its evolution through conflict and COVID-19, and prospects for improved conditions there. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 26th, Yemen's Ongoing Tragedy. Elizabeth, start us off by talking about the roots of the current conflict, not going back through all of Yemeni history, but let's say starting with the Houthis and the civil war that ultimately removed President Hadi from power and sketch out how we got from there to international intervention to the status of Yemen today. Yes, well, 
Of course, we could go right back through history. I might start just a little bit further back than the Houthi takeover of the capital in 2014, because I think it's so important to understand that the concept of Yemen as a state, as a single integrated state, is really quite awkward. And a lot of the current conflict goes back to that. The north and the south of Yemen were two states, but they only actually became two states in the 1960s. They were a patchwork of smaller statelets, sultanates, sheikhdoms, and imamate in the north. And they only united in 1990. They were already at war four years later. And then there were a lot of regional protests in the 2000s, which eventually erupted into the Arab Spring. In that run-up to the so-called Arab Spring, there had been a history of discontent between the Houthis in the north. These are the rebels who felt marginalised economically, politically, religiously. And they launched six wars with the government of Yemen. So, you know, this current war is really just a bigger continuation of that, an internationalised version. So... In 2011, the president at the time, Ali Abdullah Saleh, fell from power because of the revolution. He'd had about 30 years, just over 30 years in power. So this was a big deal. But what followed just didn't work. It didn't work for the Houthis, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council Initiative. It looked good cosmetically, but it left out insurgent groups. There wasn't any transitional justice. And the guy who took over was the old president's deputy, President Herdy. He's still in power. And this is you know, about eight years later. So none of the Houthis' grievances, wanting to run their own regions, wanting investment, wanting more political power, were, were really addressed. So it was unsurprising that the national dialogue that followed, that was led by the UN, didn't really do the trick. Let me let me ask you, Elizabeth, at that point, didn't we also have the dynamic of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the AQAP interplay with this regional and sectional dynamic as well? We did. We had a very strong resurgence of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula during the 2000s. Of course, they came into their own then with the revolution. They tried to make it sound like the revolution was all about uh, Islam, about installing an Islamist state. And then when the war broke out in 20, let's say the internationalized version of the current war in 2015, which was when the Saudi-led coalition came to rescue the new president, President Herdy, from the takeover by the Houthi rebels, Al-Qaeda took full advantage of that and managed to launch a state in the east of Yemen, swept to power there. And from that point on, they resurged with a vengeance. So the war really, really helped Al-Qaeda and to some extent ISIS grab a foothold across Yemen. Now, the Saudis weren't the only ones. You mentioned the coalition they've led, including several other countries in the region. But on the Houthi side, Iran weighed in. Who, who else has been involved in this from an international perspective? Well, the war has become truly internationalised, you're right. So I guess we could really put the current situation at the simplest level to three 
big power blocks. We've got the Houthis from the north who are backed by Iran. We've got the Yemeni government led by President Herdi, backed by Saudi Arabia and the coalition. And now we've also got separatists, secessionists in the south of Yemen, mm-hmm. currently forefronted by the Southern Transitional Council, and they're backed by the United Arab Emirates. And all three of these would like their own power structures and really would like to see themselves as governments. Although right now we do have an uneasy arrangement between the government and the Southern separatists. But basically, lots of people vying for power, and that's only the tip of the iceberg. Right. Now, obviously, this leads to thorny problems in Yemen itself, but also for United States policy. And Mick, I'll bring you in at this point, because as this conflict was devolving in the last few years, uh, until recently, you had been the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Middle East Affairs and attending probably daily meetings having to do with the the policy related to the Yemeni war. Talk through a little bit about that. How were the various elements of the United States government assessing this conflict and how to address not only the multivariate roots of the conflict, but also the severe implications for almost any policy choice you did make? Yeah, David, I mean, in my prior job in, in our old organization, the CIA, we were laser focused on the counterterrorism issue mm-hmm. um, because that is our policy. It's, it's the number one priority. Um, Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia and Yemen merged in 2009, and the Obama administration really unleashed uh, the CIA and JSOC uh, to focus on that because they were considered probably the most dangerous branch of Al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. even more so than Al-Qaeda proper. Right. And and we, I think, you know, uh, when it comes to those type of operations, we were, were pretty successful all the way up and to including uh, the successful targeting of Al-Rimi. And it's going to be actually the, the, the number one priority of the United States going forward. However, uh, as you mentioned in my last job as the deputy for the Middle East uh, in the Pentagon, uh, we had a much broader view, right? So the whole civil war was of issue to us, uh, partly because the DOD provided support to the Saudi-led coalition, uh, which was a pretty controversial thing on the Hill, both sides. So a bipartisan issue for us. We, and this went on the previous administration, the current administration provided refueling for aircraft that were participating in the uh, air campaign. And we provided side-by-side coaching to the Saudi-led coalition's air campaign, uh, which was really, from our perspective, how to best conduct this type of uh, operation. And that included limiting, uh, eliminating or at least limiting uh, civilian casualties. So um, from our perspective, even if that was ceased, it uh, would not have improved the situation in Yemen. Mm-hmm. However, the most controversial part of that, David, was the supplying of advanced munitions and right. weapon systems. Right. Talk a little bit about what what ended up being called the the YSI, the, the Yemen Security Initiative that initially was developed out of this. Uh, later on, we'll talk about attempts to build on it. But for now, what, what is the basis of that initiative? Well, it really came, I think, uh, from my perspective, from the continued briefings we did on the Hill. I mean, and some of them included all 100 senators 
And there's legitimate questions about what we were doing there because the situation, and I'm sure Elizabeth will get more into it, the humanitarian situation on the ground is, is extraordinarily dire uh, and it's only getting worse. But what were we actually doing to try to change the trajectory of what was going on in the country? So uh, we voluntarily ceased uh, refueling, but again, that didn't do anything to help the situation. So through the secretary at the time, Secretary Mattis, we uh, undertook a effort to come up with a comprehensive plan for Yemen that included not just security, but economics and uh, the political aspects of it, uh, and try to come up with a way that we could present to the international community a plan that they could get behind. So it wasn't just an endless donation of funds to Yemen. It was, this is, the, this is a plan that we all agreed to. Now, obviously, the first criticism, if you will, was why is the DOD doing this? And that's that's fair. I mean, we're we don't really usually do politics and and, and uh, economics, but we didn't do that part. We actually brought in the State Department, USAID. We talked to people like Elizabeth, that's Elizabeth Kendall, who is obviously one of the world's greatest experts on Yemen. But we also talked to PhDs who focused on conflict economics. I mean, we. We really tried to make it uh, all inclusive and not a product of the Pentagon. It was actually done primarily by uh, Rand. But anyway, it was it was our effort to at least start the dialogue that was, why don't we have a broader look at the problems in Yemen? We'll never finish the CT fight there if it's not stabilized and, mm-hmm. and there isn't some kind of economic development. So from our perspective, it all came back to security part, which is our, our responsibility. So right. that's where it was. It didn't take hold as you might uh, <laughs> know. Um, and instead, you know, they elected to go and potentially double down on weapon right. sales and breaking congressional holds and emergency declarations. Yeah. I want to hit both aspects of that breaking down. I'll come back to you for some of the implications on the U S side, but Elizabeth on the Yemeni side, I remember before I first went to Yemen in graduate school and was was reading the classics like Paul Dresch about the tribes of Yemen. He wrote that the tribal confederations have been much where they are now since at least the beginning of the Islamic era. And tribesmen have always since then been prominent in Yemeni history. So as these other countries, the Saudis, the Iranians, the U.S. through the Saudis, the Emiratis, start joining in this conflict. What was the reaction on the ground from the tribal confederations, from these new organizations? And and how did that actually exacerbate the conflict and entrench it? Well, that's a really difficult question. I wouldn't have predicted that. But, you know, the problem is that people always expect the tribes to have a view. And of course, there are as many tribes and flavors of tribes and splits mm-hmm. inside tribes as you could possibly imagine all across the especially the south and and middle and north of Yemen perhaps mm-hmm. slightly less on, on the west coast and I'm just going to give you one example in the very far east of Yemen where I work it's, it's an mostly in an area called Al Mahra and I remember uh, a particular military outfit asking me what do you think the reaction of the Mahra tribe will be well, there are at least 26 major tribes in Al-Mahra. 
that fall into three confederations. And you, you couldn't possibly say what their reaction would be. So what we have, just to answer your question, is a situation where most regional partners tend to operate with tribes by patronage, i.e. handouts, paying them off, buying their support. And that is a real recipe for disaster because you're not buying loyalty, you're just buying time. And what that means is someone else can come in, they can pay more money or pay rivals, and you end up with a real mess where tribes end up fighting each other and just are not going to get behind your theme. And so that means that no matter what peace deal gets signed, you're not going to have the clout on the ground to see mm-hmm. it through. That's where we are. And were there any pre-existing dynamics, like you pointed out, some of these confederations of, of tribes that cross this conflict? That is, that it's not a clean alignment of certain confederations are aligned with the Houthis in the border zones between the the different territories being held now, or that the Southern secessionists or the government loyalists to Hadi, is it that there is is an overlay with these confederations or has it blown up some of those simply because of the different patronages networks that have developed? It's very difficult to say because, of course, the tribal territories do tend to hold their alliances within themselves. But if they're promised something, some territory or some control or some power or some resources by a particular group, their loyalties will often shift to that group. And then as soon as that's not forthcoming or somebody else offers it, then their loyalties will shift again. So whilst whilst people have tended to see the Houthis as a tribal movement, they're not really. They're a political movement that's also rooted in religion and tribes will be fluid. Sure. And it's the same in the South. Some tribes will have gone with the Southern movement, then they will have gone with the Southern Transitional Council. Now some are going with the National Salvation Council. These are all very complicated frameworks, which, which just show you how entrenched the problem is and how if you're just going to address it with money, buy-offs, handouts mm. and patronage, you're mm. not going to solve it. What you need is representation. And Mick, this might be, I won't say easy, but the situation would be easier if you had what I would call responsible partners. That is, you had people, yes, engaged in a conflict, uh, no kidding, civil war, but interested in preserving humanitarian goals and interested in operating ethically. But we've had allegations against all sides here. We have allegations of the Houthis attacking civilians and stealing aid meant for civilians in what was already an impoverished country before the conflict. You've had allegations of the Saudis engaging in indiscriminate bombings that have taken a huge civilian toll. Talk through a little bit about that. How bad has it been on one or all sides of this conflict in terms of the military conflict hitting the population directly? Yes, it's certainly been there's been problems on on all sides. I would say that, and this is the argument we made when we went and discussed this with the Senate, is that the U.S. participation, at least in coaching the Saudis, would have helped and is helping, we think, reduce civilian casualties. We have enforced things like no strike zones. We have enforced things like uh, you have to watch a target for a certain amount of time like we do to ensure that there isn't 
civilians uh, located there. There's been mistakes, no doubt about it. I mean, the school bus incident uh, was absolutely horrible. So certainly there are improvements, but we actually hosted several uh, NGOs at the Pentagon when I was there to hear their concerns and and really uh, try to explain to them what we were doing. And one of the things that I think came out of there is their realization that if the Department of Defense wasn't at least assisting them in that, we wouldn't even be having that meeting and we wouldn't have been able to tell them anything. So I do think we can improve, uh, but I do think that our participation in the fact that we are there to enforce our rules of doing these operations uh, help. That said, uh, there's a lot of concern about the current humanitarian situation, right? You have you have the COVID crisis hitting the world. You have significant deficiencies in the donations that were promised. You know, we're down to like, I think a quarter of what was promised. Uh, Lise Grande, the uh, humanitarian coordinator there said uh, just a few days ago that half of her programs have been closed. And these are programs that aren't nice to have. These are programs that are literally sustaining life. So uh, to your point on the Houthis using some of this aid donation to their own benefit, well, that has caused the United States to cease a lot of our support, aid support to the area. I can see why that's the case. We don't want to actually fund the Houthis, which are a very toxic force there, Mm -hmm. supported at least in part by the Iranians. But from my my take, I think we should find another way to get the aid to the people because simply cutting it off and then increasing you know, weapon sales is not the right course of action. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Elizabeth, let's let's turn to you on this because by Last year, the humanitarian situation in Yemen was so bad, it was usually regarded as the worst in the world. And this is before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Just now, the United Nations, specifically the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, has released its report to cover 2019. And it really paints two pictures, one of them an impressive roundup of humanitarian efforts led by the UN to ramp up efforts to address the severe conflict in Yemen and the impact on the people, but then also a picture of the massive scope of the problem that Mick just laid out and how much more is needed. I was hoping you could talk through a little bit about this report, but really what it reflects about the situation on the ground in Yemen for the roughly 30 million people in the country. 
Yes, David, I'm so glad you've mentioned this. There is a stark contrast between last year and this year. Last year, yes, the situation was absolutely appalling. And we do have 80% of a population of 30 million in need of assistance of some kind. That's, That's 24 million people who need help. And just to put that into context, it's it's not just about 10 million or so who are starving. There have also been over 2 million cases of cholera so far. 85,000 children have died of starvation. And there are 3 million people displaced. Now, put all that together with natural disasters like cyclones and mass flooding, which have been really freak, but frequent occurrences this year then you have an absolutely catastrophic situation for the spread of COVID-19. And at precisely this time, the UN is running out of money. There's going to be a shortfall this year of about a billion dollars. So whilst the story last year, I mean, it was bad, but at least it was being addressed. The UN managed to reach about 14 million people per month and help them. This year, as Mick said, about half its programs are going to close or be drastically reduced. So, but I mean, if we actually, it's quite interesting to actually think about it from the point of view of the people. I, I had some a couple of messages when the virus first broke from Yemenis in uh, remote areas saying, we don't really understand why you're now so worried about us because of the virus. You know, we've been bombed, flooded, starved, terrorized, displaced, mm-hmm. assailed by cholera for, for five years now. And finally, now you're worried because, you know, because we're not wearing masks. To them, it it seems that the world's a bit crazy and it does just put it into context. It does. Mick, let's move on from your former role working in the U.S. government to some insights from what you're doing now. You are a newly minted special advisor to the U.N. special envoy to Yemen, Martin Griffiths. And I'm wondering if you can use the insight you've gained from that to tell us a little bit about what Elizabeth alluded to, to talk about what Yemen is facing on the ground, the issues that are requiring humanitarian assistance, the environmental damage that has been caused by the conflict, and especially its impact upon children and the different ways that children have been abused in this conflict and even brought into the conflict in a child-soldiering context? When when I was at the Pentagon, the Secretary and Special Envoy Griffith had a particularly tight relationship, so Secretary Mattis. And and we developed uh, a very tight relationship. In fact, the the YSI, the Yemen Steering Initiative that we did, was effectively turned over to the UN, and they've they've incorporated part of it, if not all of it, into their own. So when I left the Pentagon, it was kind of funny that he just turned to me and said, okay, well, you wrote the security part of this. So congratulations, you're now responsible, at least, at least in an advisory <laughs> capacity for, for carrying it out, right. right? And I mean, the whole point of the steering initiative was to put security in its proper place. Uh, security is there to help enhance the prospect of a peaceful political solution. And, that, and at the end of the day, that's the only thing it's going to be successful when it comes to ending the conflict. It's the political solution. So, and that's what I'm doing now. We are focusing on things like in a unity government, how can they function together without 
all the threats from whether it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS in Yemen or just external players like the Quds Force, um, trying to stop it for their own purposes. So it, part of it's just a physical security element. The other part is as, as the team develops um, progress in the peaceful process, um, what can we do to you know, demobilize militias, for example, try to consolidate and professionalize the military? try to enhance security so that it's more difficult to bring you know, weapons into the country, which just fuels the civil war in and of itself. And then ultimately, and this isn't my responsibility necessarily, because it's, it's an economic situation. Uh, one of the things that we've seen is that stabilization isn't just needed for the purposes of like humanitarian aid. It's needed for the purposes of ending uh, the endless wars that the United States finds itself in. If you never get into that area and then beyond, you will have a kinetic activity going on in perpetuity. So all of those things, I think, are needed, and I think most people do, for the solution. On your questions on the, the, the child soldiers. So myself my, uh, and a very good friend of mine, Eric Ulrich, a retired SEAL, did a documentary on a child soldier. Um, We're not documentary filmmakers. We just did it kind of as a passion project. I bring that up because then we became really involved in the whole situation and we were asked to speak on it. And, uh, and as a result, we've gotten fairly educated and we, and we use our documentary to raise money for NGOs that deal with it. But specific to Yemen, the United States uh, has a child protection act that was passed almost unanimously and it requires us to hold countries accountable for their activities and their decision to use children as soldiers. We have been fairly good at enforcing that. But recently, we have given essentially passes uh, to certain countries and against the recommendation of several career folks at State Department refused to include Saudi Arabia in that group for their use of Sudanese children to fight in Yemen. From my perspective, it is incumbent on us to hold both our adversaries, for example, the Houthis, which also use extensively use children uh, in fighting, but also, you know, even our partners, which is Saudi Arabia. That's the only way this is going to change. And if you look at it from a worldwide perspective and the estimates that there is 100,000 children currently fighting in up to 18 conflicts around the world, I mean, that that has to be something that changes. And in the last, I think the UN put out a report, I don't think, I know, they put out a report that in 2019, child soldier usage in the Middle East, primarily in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, doubled. So from our perspective, hmm. this is something that is is a problem that I think every adult, quite frankly, should care about. Yeah. And it's on, it's on our political leaders to hold both our partners and our adversaries equally responsible for their bad actions. Right. Unfortunately, there are all too many cases from the Yemeni conflict in the last few years, both in general, as you're speaking about, but also specific scenes that remind us of the horror and the tragedy. Elizabeth, just in in recent weeks, we've had reports of a dentist near Sana'a accused of spying who was shot and supposedly crucified outside of his own health center, and the images of a girl shot dead in Taiz while getting water, fetching water for her family. 
hundreds, if not thousands of civilians, mostly women and children, have been shot by the Houthis and others in this conflict. Share with us a little bit about what you've seen, what you've heard when you've, when you've been in Yemen or when you've talked to people across the country. How are they talking about the, the impact on the basic needs of life and the ability to, to even survive to get through to a potential peaceful resolution to the conflict itself? I think people have really started to give up hope, if I'm perfectly honest. It's, it just seems so entrenched now. And violence is now so normal. I, and I've sat in circles of tribesmen before where they've just sort of passed images around on their mobile phones of, of beheadings and just you know, making ordinary comments on it. It's, it's appalling how desensitised people are becoming. Death is the normality. The figures are startling. Over, well over 100,000 people have been killed in the Yemen conflict to date. And and if you include indirect deaths from things like cholera, diphtheria, starvation, it would be about a quarter of a million. Mm. And that doesn't even start to get under the skin of the problem because, like Mick said, the real problem is going to be the next generation. The problem is going to be with the kids. And if you think about this, if you're 15 years old, you've basically known only war since you were nine. So that's all of your formative years. Your schooling has been disrupted. You haven't learned anything. You might be one of the three million displaced people as well. How are you going to rebuild this country? And what are these kids going to do? So, you know, they'll have to join a militia or join an extremist group or join in the smuggling or the organized crime. There is no economy other than the war economy. So there's a ton of things to think about other than just the everyday violence. There's all of the mental trauma and the future training that has to be taken into consideration. I would say that people on the ground feel betrayed, that can't understand why we're still selling weapons to some of the protagonists in the war, and they can't understand why things aren't improving and peace isn't able to be brokered, why their leaders are betraying them and why they don't feel represented. Right. And on top of all that, Elizabeth, then you put the COVID crisis on it. And you had mentioned that early on in the crisis, Yemenis would say, well, now you're paying attention to us because you're suffering from the same thing. But that's not to deny the fact that COVID is hitting and will continue to hit Yemen especially hard. We have something around 4 million internally displaced persons already with Estimates I've seen of over 850,000 of those in very poorly maintained camps across Yemen that are starting to see outbreaks of, of COVID that are simply not treated. There's little or no testing in these camps or in most of the country. There's certainly not mask wearing. There's little ability to social distance within the urban areas during conflict. There's not even rudimentary health care for a majority of Yemenis. How do you see the COVID crisis playing out? Are, are the estimates true that as many people could die of COVID as have died in the conflict so far from all other causes? Could, could that be true? I think it's really hard to tell, but I, I would 
say it certainly could be true. It's just that, as you say, the collection of data is so difficult. I believe there are only around still about six testing centres in the whole of Yemen for a, a population of 30 million. So we're never going to know. And a lot of people say they don't know what what they're dying of because with dengue fever, cholera and diphtheria also lurking there. And as you say, of course, there'll be many complications from a population that's living in cramped conditions for those millions who are displaced, probably unhygienic. They're being given instructions on how to wash their hands, but they don't have access to clean water or soap. And if they're starving, they're weakened from hunger as well. So it does stand to reason that this population will be decimated by COVID-19, even if that isn't the proven cause of death. Let's close this discussion with some thoughts on what we collectively can be doing about this. Mick, you mentioned earlier the Yemen Steering Initiative. And although that was not the success you hoped it would be, I understand that there there is an effort now for a Yemen Steering Initiative 2.0 led by the Middle East Institute, which you are affiliated with, and other institutions. Talk through that initiative and what you and others hope to see come of it in the coming months and years. Yes, that's exactly right, David. There is an effort now to bring back uh, the Yemen Steering Initiative, revamp it, bring in more people. For example, I'm responsible for recruiting Elizabeth. She doesn't know that yet. Um, but we are trying to to expand it. And one of my colleagues at the Middle East Institute, uh, Jerry Firestein, who's a former ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Yemen twice, um, he's involved. So we are really going to try to bring in a lot of experts from across the diversity of fields, a lot of Yemen leadership, and, and not just make this an academic exercise or something that ends up being put on the shelves of policy people in, in Washington, but to use it as a way to really provide the international community and the donors in particular a way to see where their, where their actual resources are going. Uh, one other aspect of it is there's kind of like a sh- sign-up sheet at the back of it that says, okay, we all understand there's problems with, with Yemen. Uh, we don't need people to sit in the sidelines and just repeat that. We need you to do something, whether it's training, whether it's funding, whether it's something else. Uh, I do think that a lot of people that are involved in this, I'm just one part of it, are looking at this as a potential that if it's developed before this time, that if there is a transition in administrations, that they'll be able to present this as a possible roadmap and policy guide uh, for the for a potential new administration, if that's if that happens. Elizabeth, let me turn to you for some closing thoughts. What is it that the international community in general, individual governments or individuals can be doing about this situation? I think what's really lacking in all of the approaches to peace at the moment is some creative thinking around real inclusivity. Because it's so easy for the UN or embassies or partners in the region to go back to their same old lists of the same old elites, of the same big names who claim to be the spokesman for the tribe or the spokesman for the community, and, and just get them together and start to talk to the big names, the big families, the big parties. 
this is never going to translate into peace on the ground. Now, there are a couple of little initiatives going on. The UN has started to bring together big multi-consultations using technology, including a lot more women, a lot more youth, a lot more of those who are not the usual names. And, and enterprises like the Sonar Centre, which is a think tank, have started a project called Unheard Voices. And to bring real Yemenis in, to give them a sense that they're bought into whichever solution is being discussed. And all right, I'm not talking about a full-on democracy and, and a brilliant way of selecting representatives, but I'm talking about transparency and mechanisms that get all the regions involved. This is crucial if any peace deal that's eventually negotiated is going to translate into something tangible on the ground. If that doesn't happen, there'll be so many disgruntled, disillusioned parts of the population that it will be a gift to terrorists to resurge, make alliances, and come back with a vengeance. And I must say, we have had so many ceasefires and peace initiatives within the last few years, but even during the COVID crisis that have not held Do you have any reasonable prospect that the parties are tired enough of fighting and have agreed that their ultimate goals cannot be met, that we can have faith in any of these efforts in the near term? I don't have much faith, I'm afraid. Uh, I think everyone is war-weary in the West and that that could be our route because we might actually bring enough pressure to bear on our partners and allies in the region that they will follow through on the agreements that they sign. Currently, the problem is not getting people to sign agreements, it's getting them to implement them. And we're going to have to leave it there. Elizabeth, Mick, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, David. Thank you and and Lawfare for tackling this issue. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. We hope you will share the podcast, rate the podcast, and visit thelawfarestore.com to look at Lawfare merch. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo Studios is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.